Let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 28. Just last week, we started a series called Discern that we're just doing for the next four weeks, and we looked at the importance of discerning our world, the importance of ensuring that we not love the world or the things of the world, but instead we understand that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be different, that that's what the Lord has put on our hearts and commanded us to do in our lives, and it's for our good and His glory. And today I want us to look then at what do we do instead? If we're called to still be in the world, what is it that we're actually meant to be doing here? We can't just be Reuben and Sadie and put on our black hats and black outfits and do nothing with it and pull ourselves out. What is it that we're meant to be doing in the world for the glory of God? And so I've called this message, Discern Your Mission. I'm going to read together from verse 19 through 20. And although we're going to be spending most of our time in verses 18 through 20, Do you want us to read the entire text? This is the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, your word is wonderful. Lord, your word isn't just a tool in our hands. It is a treasure in and of itself. And Lord, I thank you as we gather around your word, we We no doubt gather in this moment to hear the highlight of the service, which isn't me preaching, it is the reading of your word. It's the only moment in the service where we hear you directly, untainted, unchanged, directly speaking to us from your word. Lord, did you help us today to gather around your word and Would the cry of our heart not only be, Lord, Lord, but would it be, Lord, Lord, and leaning in to listen so that we can apply this? Lord, you are our rabbi. You are our teacher. You are our master. So we're listening. In your precious name, amen. You know, one of the things I love to talk about to children, one of the things I love to ask, particularly small children, is, you know what? What do you want to do with your life? Particularly, what do you want to be when you're older? What do you want to do with a life? I remember Emma and I asking Liam this some time ago. I said, Liam, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, I want to grow up and be a fire engine. So that's beautiful, Liam. Like a transformer thing? Is that what you're thinking in mind? I remember asking Ruby Wood the same question some years ago. I said, Ruby, what do you want to do with your life? And she said, I want to be a unicorn catcher. (laughs) I'm like, that is awesome. Not just a finder of unicorns. But a unicorn catch, I mean, this is just world-class stuff. I hope you get to do that. I actually asked um, Evie Spring a few weeks ago as well. We had her for the day. Um, delightful young lady, as is young Jasper. And I said, Evie, what do you want to do with your life? And she said straight away, she didn't even have to think about it. She said, I want to be a singer on the stage. <laughs> and I said, wow, like in front of lots of people. She's like, yes, to millions. <laughs> I said, this is awesome. I mean, I could be your manager. I mean, I could help you do this. And she's like, yes. I just hope she doesn't sing like her father. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. 
10 out of 10 for passion, lacking out of 10 for ability. But I do like a passion and I do like a desire to be a singer on a stage for millions. And yet so many kids, when you ask them the same question about what they want to do in their life, they simply say, I don't know. I have no idea what I, what I want to do in my life. I, I just don't know. Well, I thank God that when it comes to the question of what He primarily wants us to do with our life, we're not left guessing. When it comes to understanding what God actually wants us to do with our lives, He tells us right here. He wants us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. None of us in the room should be wondering, I wonder what I'm called to, or I wonder what God wants me to do with my life. The ultimate thing he wants you to do, fact, it is here to to you, speaking to you, he wants you to go and make disciples. See, if you're a Christian, I want you to understand this is for you. We can try and pretend it isn't for you, but in doing so, you're just like Thomas Jefferson. You're having to take a penknife to different verses and just tear them out as if this doesn't apply to me. But it does apply to you. This is the word of God to you. Mark Dever says this in his book, Discipling. He says, Jesus' final command was not to urge his disciples to armed resistance to Rome or seek revenge on those who killed him. Rather, Jesus looked at his followers and told them to make disciples, not just be disciples. But Jesus makes no distinction between those to whom this commission was given and those to whom it wasn't given. He promises his presence to all Christians, as Pentecost would soon show. And that promise extends to the end of the ages, long beyond the apostles' lives. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, All Christians would undertake this work according to their abilities, opportunities, and callings. Listen. The Great Commission is given to all those who would be a disciple of Jesus. And this command is given to every believer at all times. It's inclusive. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you're wondering, what does he want me to do with my life? He wants you to go and make disciples with your life. He gave this instruction to the disciples first, but it wasn't just to those 11 and everybody else just make it up as you go along. They're just representing the church to come. They're representing all disciples of Christ. And so he's talking, if you are a true follower of Jesus, he's talking to you. And yet the question that I think we can sometimes come to when it comes to understanding our mission is, you know what, what what does this all mean? What does it mean to make disciples? And what does it actually look like to go and make disciples? How does this really work and what does it mean? Well, by definition, this is what it means. Are you ready? This is what you're called to. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, it means being people who are following Jesus, helping others to follow Jesus. That's what you're called to primarily. You're called to be a people who are following Jesus, helping others to follow Jesus. Well, I'm pleased I've cleared that up. So thanks for coming. You know, we go on. Now, I'm aware even in that definition, it's helpful because I think it gives us a headline of what we're really called to do. And yet, even as we examine that, the question still remains, great, but what does that mean? 
What does it mean to be a people who are following Jesus, helping others to follow Jesus? What does it look like to go and make disciples? Well, that's what I, a question I want to answer today. What does it look like to be somebody who goes and makes disciples? If this is what we're all called to, what does it all mean and what does it look like for the glory of God? And my friends, this is important because as Jesus said last week, we don't want to be a people who just say, Lord, Lord, and then simply don't do what he says. If we're going to call him master, master, we have to pay attention to what he's saying and realize he's addressing me here. He's calling me to make disciples. And so it's important that we lean in to seek to understand. But I would argue that this one is particularly important, not only because it helps us to build our lives upon the rock, but more even than that, people's eternal destinies are at stake. It is vital that we understand this call of God on our lives. So what does it look like to make disciples? It's clearly what we're called to, so what does that all look like? Well, it looks like five things. And this morning I want to outline all of those five things so that we may understand what it really looks like to make disciples, what it looks like to be people who are following Jesus, helping others to follow Jesus. Five things, and here's the first. Number one, it looks like genuinely loving and following Jesus for ourselves. That's where the story begins. If you're going to be truly making disciples, which is the call of God on each of your lives, then first of all, we need to understand it looks like genuinely loving and following Jesus for ourselves. See, if we're not doing that, if you're not loving Jesus for yourself, there's kind of nothing else to say. There's nothing to do. You'd be asking somebody else to follow something that you don't follow yourself. You're pointing out that you need to follow Jesus when in reality you don't follow Jesus yourself. That's just weird. We have to be genuinely loving and following Jesus ourselves if we're going to make disciples of anybody. I think somebody who modeled that so well was the Apostle Paul. Obviously he was an exceptional character. But I love to use him as an example because Paul was not part of the quadrinity. Okay? He's a guy just like us. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everybody else is a mere human. He's just like us. You could sit him down in Sovereign Grace Church. You would not pick him out of the crowd. He's just a guy. But he was a wonderful disciple maker, wasn't he? He's a man that we can pay attention to, understanding he's just like me. We can lean in and seek to try and understand from him and in some ways be discipled by him. One of the things that is clear about the Apostle Paul is he genuinely and passionately loved and followed Jesus. Jesus was everything to him. He says this to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 4 through 8. He said, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, to Paul, he's aware. Listen, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a zealot of zealots. I mean, I was doing everything right as human defined. I was quite the guy. And yet I've considered all that as dung compared to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The greatest thing in my life, Paul was saying, is Jesus. It's knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, knowing him as my redeemer and friend and king. 
I've considered everything else in my life insignificant compared to the glory of knowing Him. St. Patrick said it this way. He said, Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ behind me, Christ in front of me, Christ within me. That's the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I'm all about Jesus now. Not because it's duty. I'm not interested in duty. I'm all about Jesus because this is delight. He's changed my life. I've encountered him. Paul is like the man in Matthew 13 who finds the treasure. The man who finds his treasure in a field and immediately goes away and sells everything he has just so he can buy the field and gain the treasure. Jesus is everything for him. And my friends, I want to encourage you, if you are going to be a disciple maker, something you're called to be, you have to understand that first and foremost, you like Paul, you have to genuinely love and follow Jesus. Without a love for him, it lacks integrity. And without following him, you have nothing to say. It's where it all begins. You have to first and foremost be a follower of Jesus yourself. Bowing the knee to Jesus as your rabbi, following him as your savior and king, not because of duty, but generally because of delight. Now listen, make no mistake, this does not mean you have to be perfect, okay? Otherwise none of us are going to be able to do it, me included. This is not an implication that therefore I have to be a perfect disciple before I can go and make disciples. No, each and every one of us is an imperfect disciple, and you always will be. And if the Apostle Paul was sitting here, he'd be putting his hand up at this point saying, yep, that's me as well. Because in Romans chapter 7, he says, talking about what it's like as a Christian, he says, you know what? Even as a Christian, why is it that I keep doing things that I don't want to do, and I keep not doing things that I know I should do? Oh, wretched man that I am. He's aware there's a dichotomy in my heart. There's a battle going on in my heart between the spirit and the flesh. He's aware in and of his own life. He is not a perfect disciple. John Newton, the slave trader, he, he said it this way. He said, in short... I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistence. Do you ever feel that as a Christian? You know what? In short, I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistence. I feel that all the time. I'm a riddle. I do genuinely love Jesus, but I'm a heap of inconsistence. What is going on? That's what Paul was like. That's what he's indicating to us in Romans chapter 7. So this doesn't mean that if I'm going to go and make disciples of other people, I've got to be a perfect disciple. No, you're going to be imperfect for the rest of your days until Jesus comes and glorifies you. But if you are going to make disciples, what it does mean is you have to first and foremost genuinely love and follow Jesus. It has to be real for you. Otherwise, there's nothing to pass on. You have to really love Jesus. And you have to really be following Jesus. Jared Wilson in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, says it this way. He says, Christian discipleship always means following Jesus. It means following Jesus wherever he goes. And it means lashing ourselves to him like a sailor in a storm-tossed boat might lash himself to the mast. I love that. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to understand that I am lashing myself to him like a sailor would in a storm-tossed boat might dash themselves to the mast. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That as for me in my life, I'm bowing the knee to you. You are my savior. You are my king. I call you master, master, and I want to follow you as such. 
My friends, that needs to be our story. And this is where all discipleship must begin. It's not a list of to-dos. It begins with a genuine heart that says, Jesus, I love you and I want to follow you. You know, maybe you're here today then and you're a Christian, but already you're aware, hang on a minute, I need to tap out. This is not my story. I wish it was, but it's not. You know, sometimes when that's the case, I think we can point the finger at God and wag the finger at God and say, where did you go? When the reality is every time he didn't go anywhere, you went. You moved away. You stopped talking to him. Thank the Lord that he doesn't treat us like so often we treat him. Listen, if you are presently not loving Jesus, not following Jesus, but you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to take some time, even this week, to begin sitting at his feet again. That's all you need to do. He's not cross with you. He's not angry with you. He's just aware that you've been avoiding him like the plague for some time. Go and sit at his feet. That's what the story of Mary and Martha is all about. Martha is anxious and troubled about a load of things. But Jesus says, Martha, what are you talking about? Mary's chosen the good portion. What is Mary doing? Sitting at his feet. Just listening. Seeking to hear his word. Seeking to be with him. Seeking to spend time with him. My friends, all genuine discipleship means truly, truly and genuinely loving and following Jesus. And that's where it begins. That's not where it finishes no it continues then what does it mean what does it look like to make disciples Well, number two it looks like truly caring about people so important that we care about people you're not going to make disciples of anybody if you don't care about them we have to have a heart for people once again we see that so well with the apostle paul paul arrives in athens in acts chapter 17 he starts to engage with the people of athens And it says that immediately he was greatly distressed in spirit. And I've always been affected by that. Because in there it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He wasn't distressed in the Holy Spirit. He was distressed in his own spirit, in his own soul, and in his own heart. He was greatly distressed as he encountered the people of Athens. And he was greatly distressed because he deeply cared. See, for Paul, as he enters into Athens, even with its beauty and grandeur and architecture, as he walks around the city, all he can see is people. There are only 10,000 people that lived in Athens at that time. But in amongst those 10,000 people, there were over 30,000 idols. There were idols everywhere. Every street corner, every hill, every place he looked. And as he encountered the people, his heart would bleed for them. Why? Well, because he's aware that even now they have their orange jumpsuits on. They're far away from the Lord. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord. Paul knows it so well. They are by nature an object of his wrath. And so by nature he looks at them and he grieves for them because he's aware you just don't get it. You don't see it. You don't understand. That right now you're cut off from God in your sin. You're unable to spend time with him. Moreover, you're an object of his righteous, angry wrath. And you're looking to find satisfaction in 30,000 idols everywhere you look. There's idol after idol after idol, but none of them will satisfy you. And as Paul walks around the city, his heart breaks. He's distressed of spirit because he's aware you just don't get it. And he weeps for them, just like Jesus weeped over Jerusalem for exactly the same issue. My friends, if we're serious about making disciples, that which we've been called to, we must understand we have to slow 
down enough to care. Slow down enough to see what God sees. Slow down enough to see the reality that do you realize those around you are in their orange jumpsuits and running headlong to hell? We forget, don't we? We live at a thousand mile an hour and just forget. It's all cool. It's all cool. And have no idea that it is not cool at all. To really make disciples, well, it starts with care. John Rice, in his book, The Soul Winner's Fire, says it this way, wonderfully. He says, many have the impression that the best man or woman is the best soul winner. That the Christian who has the highest moral standards, pays his debts, avoids worldliness, attends church, tithes, etc., will automatically be the best soul winner. But that is not true. If it were true, then every Pharisee would have been a wonderful soul winner. But they were not. Many a Christian today prays, reads the Bible, attends church, and carefully watches his daily life, yet never wins a soul. That is tragic, and yet without doubt true. How often in mission a good sister or brother rises to testify and says, I want to live such a godly life that sinners will see my daily walk and be saved. The fact is, their living a godly life does not win sinners to Christ. That is not the way God has appointed to get sinners saved. Living a godly life, listen, is important, vitally important for the one who would be a soul winner. But that first condition of soul winning, divinely appointed, is simply this. That in love, we get up and go after sinners. It's so true. It is vitally important that we live a godly life. That's how we ensure that there's something to say. That people observe there's something different about you. But that ain't enough. We have to then care enough to open our mouths and befriend people. We literally have to walk across the room and be a friend of sinners just like Jesus did, just like Paul did, just like my dad did. You know, I thank God for my dad's example to me. Growing up on this issue, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, and I remember many occasions growing up all the time, there was always people in our house that I'd never met before, had no idea who they were, all the time. And often they were unbelievers. They were people that my dad had met like up the street or on the street corner because they were having a drink or two in like the telephone box in the corner. And then I'd get out of bed, you know, be hanging out, and we'd be having lunch, and then suddenly they'd walk in, and my dad didn't really drink that much, but they'd be sitting there with their Heineken cans or their white lightning, and you'd be like, who is this person? But my dad wanted to tell him about Jesus. He always wanted to tell people about Jesus. And I'll never forget growing up times when those people weren't around and my dad would be talking to my mum and I would just be listening in young. And as he would share about people that he wanted to win for Christ, he would start crying. And so I learned, not through words but through actions, that's what it looks like to love people. That's what it is. My friends, soul winners always care. And if we're going to make disciples, we must understand it looks like caring about people. But even that isn't enough. The story then continues. Number three, making disciples, well, it also looks like telling people about Jesus. It's wonderful to care. Bad news is the Mormons care. Jehovah's Witnesses care. Muslims care. That ain't going to do. That ain't going to win people to Jesus Christ. There's many caring people. I would argue that I know many unbelievers that are more caring than I. Care alone is 
not enough. It's a means to an end, but it is not an end. If we are going to make disciples, if we're going to be people following Jesus, helping others to follow Jesus, then we must tell people about Jesus, mustn't we? Romans 10 verse 13, Paul says it this way. He says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that not good news? Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Paul knew through his own life. He was a Christian terrorist. And yet God in his grace, boom, saved him in his moment and his life completely changed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fact. But then he continues, verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Listen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's a fact. But how are they to call on the one in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe without somebody telling them? And how is somebody going to tell them without being sent? Well, Matthew 28, you get sent. Go and make disciples of all nations. You're on. Paul knows that. It's an allusion to that. He's helping you see you've been sent, right? So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? My friends, it's our job. Who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell your family that don't know the Lord? Who's going to tell your communities? Who's going to tell your workplaces? God, in His righteous and wonderful sovereignty, has placed you in their lives. Who's going to tell them? You. That's what you've been called and set apart to do. You know, for each and every one of us, then, we have to, as Rico Tai says, get over the pain line. And it is a pain line, is it not? It's a pain line. We're cool befriending people. Yeah, we're buddies. This is good. And then we tell them, hey, can I tell you something about Jesus? Yeah, um, without him, you're going to hell. And oh, this is awkward. You know, it, there's a pain line involved when we start communicating the clarity of the gospel to people, is or not? But it's a pain line we've got to get over. And unless you're way different from me, the fear of man is a distinct challenge in this issue, is it not? I mean, rarely you find somebody who doesn't struggle with the fear of man. That's amazing. They're usually a bit weird. The rest of us really do struggle with the fear of man. It's a challenge. It can be difficult to communicate the gospel all the time to whoever. That can be hard. I know I find it difficult myself. Put me in front of a room of 1,000 people. I'm cool. I don't even feel that nervous. Put me in front of one that doesn't know Jesus and they're trying to like talk to me about Jesus. It kind of feels awkward. My mouth feels like it's swelling up. I feel like I'm dribbling even though I'm not. It's awkward. I think I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I'm going to run out of words. Emma and I were going through a book by Jeff Andersfeld just before Christmas and called Gospel Fluency. And he talks in there about show and tell, the importance of living our lives the way we do and then being willing to tell people why we do it. And I was challenged by that and provoked by that. And she's like, Lord, will you give me some opportunities? And you're kind of hoping he might not, but you know, you're aware that he's probably going to. And I saw one of my soccer friends there, and it was actually Liam's team, and uh, meeting one of the new dads I'd never met him before. And got chatting and he said, oh, so um, Liam's, Liam's a foster kid. I said, yeah, actually, he's in foster care with us and love him and treat him as our own, but he's, he's in foster care. And he said, oh, so why do you do that? Historically, at that point, I've gone, oh, you know, we've got a big house and um, we, we like kids and there's a lot of needs, so we thought we would. And that's what I've usually said. But we were challenged by this chapter and so he asked me, you know, why, did you, why do you foster care? And I said, well, 
<laughs> I felt my mouth going funny. I said, well, it's because we really love Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, he kind of fostered me, actually he adopted me. And so we want to do that for other people. And there was a bit of tumbleweed. Because it wasn't just him, there was other people listening to the conversation. There was a group of us. And then he said, I really respect that. He said, actually, my family are Catholic, but they ain't like you. They ain't talking about what you're talking about. So what was it about Jesus that changed your life? And he started a conversation. He didn't feel weird about it at all. I did. He didn't feel weird. I'm just trying to talk. You know, that was one of those moments where I'm grateful that God in his grace gave me the grace to get beyond the pain line. And yet the truth is I have missed or squandered many, many opportunities because I'm fearful of what they may think of me as I tell them about Jesus. I think we can all relate to that at different times, can't we? But here's the harsh and sad reality, my friends. The harsh and sad reality is whilst not many of us are queuing up for unpopularity, There are people in your network of life that are queuing up in their tens and tens for hell. And they don't even realize it. While we're not queuing up for unpopularity, they are queuing up for a destiny beyond Jesus Christ. They are walking all the time towards hell. And we know that. We know the truth, do we not? And we know the truth that can set them free. And we even know that God has sent me to tell them. We must overcome the fear of man. We must get over the pain line. I don't want to get to heaven or on that day of judgment and have unbelievers look at me and say, why didn't you tell me? And for me to be standing there thinking, well, I just wanted you to like me. What a sad moment that would be. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it this way, He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they would perish, then let them do so with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, then let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. My friends, may that be our story. If we're serious about making disciples, we need to understand it looks like telling people about Jesus. And listen, it can so be so easy then, I think, to think, well, that's the story stopped, right? That's our mission. No. It's just part of it. Because if we're going to also make disciples, then number four, it looks like being in this for the long haul with people. See, I think we can make this massive mistake on this point. It can be so easy to think that our work is done when we tell somebody about Jesus and they finally walk through the doors of the church and they give their life to Christ. Bingo, I'm done. That's my mission. No, it's not. You're not done yet. Pay attention. Look at these verses. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, that ain't done when they walk in through the church and give their life to Jesus, is it? You have not taught them to observe all that Jesus has commanded you at that point. You just told them about Jesus and led them to faith. But your work is not Done. It's not like you walk in through the door and they become a Christian. Wonderful. Hand them over to pastors. 
Wonderful. No, no, it doesn't, it doesn't say that. Go and make disciples of all nations, you know, baptize them and then hand them over to pastors. No, it says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. You. You are called to do that. You are called to teach people to observe all that I have commanded you. I mean, when you stop and consider that, you realize just how massive this job is, don't you think? It's huge. You are responsible to play a part in people's lives to teach them all of this. Not just teach them it, like regurgitate it, but teach them to obey it, to observe it, to bring their lives in line with Scripture in all of life in a completely holistic way. So the truth is our work is certainly not done when we bring somebody through the door. Even if they give their life to Jesus Christ, our work is not done. It is ongoing and it is holistic in every way. The truth is we are going to be discipling people in this church for the rest of your life. You're always going to be discipling. You should always be discipling. Why? Because this is what God has called you to do. When can you stop? Well, when every single person obeys and observes everything that Jesus taught you. Oh, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. No. So you're constantly going to be discipling people. It's the way we're called to be. Mike Devis says it this way in his book, Discipling. He says, When the church scatters, the ministry of teaching and oversight should always continue in the lives of members. This happens over weeknight desserts or Saturday morning breakfasts, while folding laundry or taking trips to the grocery store. Discipling lasts all week as members meet to talk, pray, encourage, and assist one another in the fight for love and holiness. How wonderful. See, I think sometimes we can think, no, there's evangelism and then there's discipleship. But what Jesus is saying is, no, they want the same thing. They're all part of the mission. They're all part of the Great Commission. You're constantly being a people who are following Jesus, helping others to follow Jesus. And that never stops. It's a continuum that we're all on all the time, all involved with all the time. We should all be involved with teaching and modeling and encouraging and praying and counseling and assisting. It's holistic. You should be able to look around the room and be aware, I'm being discipled by that person and that person and that person, and I'm helping disciple that person and that person and that person. It's very intermingled and ongoing all the time. And if it's not, then we're just not discerning what God is really calling us to. See, maybe even when I gave you the title this morning, Discern Your Mission, you thought evangelism. And now I'm completely confusing you. Because you're like, that sounds like about discipling the church. Yes. It's all part of the mission. It's all part of the mission. Both telling people about Jesus, seeing them put their faith in Jesus, and now teaching them to observe all that he has commanded you. It does, I think, as Mr. Devers says, it continues all the time. It happens over weeknight desserts or breakfasts or folding laundry or taking trips to the grocery store. It happens all the time. And honestly, I thank thank God for the amount of this kind of discipleship that we already have going on in this church. And I want us to discern it because I think sometimes we don't discern what's really going on. But there is a lot of discipleship taking place in this church already. Each and every week we meet in gospel communities. I thank God for the way your leaders lead those gospel communities. Because if you pay attention to what's coming out of their mouth, what you realize is, they are discipling me. Yes, they are. They're teaching you. They're modeling hospitality. They're seeking to bring the Bible to bear on your life. They're seeking to care for you. That's part of what discipleship means. And the truth is, when you're opening your mouth in those groups, guess what? You're discipling one another as well. 
You know in the Bible where it says teach one another and counsel one another? You think, how does that all work? Well, it's called groups and discipleship where we care for one another. And when you open your mouth and say something, whether that be live or on WhatsApp, what you're doing more often than not is discipling. You're bringing things to bear. I thank God for the way that happens in growth groups as well. Your leaders, once again, listen, pay attention to what they're saying. They're discipling you. Why are they asking the questions they're asking? Why are they answering it the way they're answering it? We need to pay attention to these things. They're discipling you. And the truth is, when we're playing a part in those growth groups, we're discipling one another as well. We're bringing things to bear on one another's lives. It's part of discipleship. We're trying to do the same with SG Youth. And our youth group is going great. We have 20 kids. It's a wonderful time. Why have we structured it the way we do with socials around the different core team members' houses and then Emma and I leading a discipleship group and hot topics? Why are we doing it the way we do it? Well, because we want to disciple them. It's not just a teaching exercise. We want to show them our lives and do life with them. Seek to dazzle them with the glories of the gospel and teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. That takes discipleship, not just teaching. The same happens in SG Kids. I think Janelle is just doing a wonderful job alongside all the other leaders. They're not just babysitting out there, okay? They're seeking to disciple these kids in the way they should go. They're seeking to bring the Bible to bear on their lives and dazzle them with who Jesus really is and teach them to observe all that he's commanded. And why? Because that's how it's going to go well for you kids. We want you to be kids that find the treasure in the field and then go away and sell everything you've got just because you want the treasure. And that you're going to disciple the kids to that end. I thank God for Coyote and the way he leads prayer group. And it's good to have you back, my friend. He's been very sick. You know, when you hang around with Coyote and you spend time praying with Coyote, you're not just praying with somebody. He's schooling you in how to pray. Pay attention to that. He's discipling you in how to pray. It's a discipleship moment if we see it for what it really is. When Henry and Andrew are leading us in worship and doing such a wonderful job, when they're opening their mouths, you can be like, oh, it's a bit of an interruption. You know, I'm just trying to play guitar, just sing. No, here's what they're doing. They're discipling you. Why are we singing? Why should we come today to sing? Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to open our mouths? What's so amazing about the Lord? They're discipling you in that moment. Why do we keep encouraging you to come to church early and stay late? Because discipleship happens in those moments. When we encourage one another and care for one another and counsel one another and teach one another, it's all part of discipleship, helping people to become more like Jesus Christ. Titus 2 ministry and men's ministry, same thing. Pastoral ministry, preaching. I'm not just trying to help you see what happens in these verses. I'm trying to teach you even now and disciple you even now on how to read the Bible. We need to pay attention to that. Discern what is really going on in our church. It is a lot of discipleship. But there are just a few highlights that I've cared to mention. See, as Mark Dever says, he says, so much of discipling is doing what you ordinarily do, but bringing people along with you and having meaningful conversations like Jesus did. They happen all the time in our church. But my friends, as, as your lead pastor, I feel a distinct burden for this ministry aware that I think the Lord wants to do this all the more. We're eight years old now as a church, and I believe one of the primary ways he wants to mature us is with this type of discipleship ministry happening in our church. People discipling people. Everybody involved. 
drawing people into your life, whether you be doing the laundry or shopping at the grocery store or eating dessert and intentionally having conversations about Jesus. Why? Well, so that we can teach each other to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. Why do we need to do that? Because that's the call of God on your life. It's not an optional extra. It's part of the Great Commission. My friends, if this is new to you, then a couple of encouragements I've got for you. A couple of books that I want to recommend to you. Number one, Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus by Mark Dever. It is a fantastic book. All your leaders have got it. and They've probably read it. Ask them about it. If they haven't read it, that's going to be awkward for them. So you asking will remind them. But get it for yourself and digest it because it isn't just your leaders that need to be discipling. It's you as well. This is the call of God on, on your life. It is a wonderful book. Another book would be The Imperfect Disciple by Jared Wilson. I'd suggest reading them in that order. Discipling by Deva helps you see what discipling really is. The Imperfect Disciple helps you understand, I am not going to do this perfectly. And I've got so far to go. I also want to encourage you to come to the Envision Night tonight. We're going to be talking about this in particular. I'm going to be sharing just some things that we feel the Lord's put on our heart as a church and some means that I think are going to help us to disciple one another for the glory of the Lord. But make no mistake, making disciples looks like being in this for the long haul. We must understand that. Job's not done when you walk somebody through the door. Still going on. Still happening. Should be happening intentionally and purposefully in all conversations for the rest of our lives. And then number five, the fifth thing that it looks like finally It looks like delighting in the reality that you're never alone. That you're never alone in this task. See, what a happy and delightful reality this must have been to the first disciples that were hearing Jesus say this. These guys are kids, 19, 20, 21 years old. They're aware that Jesus is going. And then he's telling them, yeah, I'm going, but I want you to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And listen, everything that I've taught you, everything, yeah, teach them that. Teach them all those things and make sure they observe it all. Can you imagine being that group of 11 disciples wondering, how are we going to pull this off? They haven't got like a list of examples. They haven't got generations before them that you can just copy. No, they're the first guys standing on a cliff edge wondering, what an earth is he on about and how are we going to pull this off it's just us guys guys are you seeing somebody else no it's just us um hang on where are you going it must have been overwhelming but here is the happy discovery that they witnessed both before and after what jesus caused them to do we must take a plate it's like a sandwich it's understanding we pay attention to it in verse 18 he says and jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Well, that's a huge statement. All of it. All authority, all power, all might in heaven and earth has now been given to me. Just a little while earlier, he'd been hanging on the cross and he cried out, It is finished. His battle with Satan was finished. His battle with death was finished. Everything that he had come to do and give his life away for was finished in this moment. It was finished to the full. And having risen again... God now the Father bestows all authority on His Son. All authority in all the heavens and all the earth. Nothing can stand against Jesus now. 
He's in control of it all. He has power to do anything in the world, anything in the skies, anything in the earth, anything in the heavens, anything in the world. He's in control of it all and has the power to change anything at any moment. He can bring people from death to life and darkness to light and blindness to sight. Nothing can stand against him. Human sin is stubborn, but it is not as stubborn as the power and grace of God. Nothing can stand against him. All authority, guys, in heaven and earth has now been given to me. That he tells him, so go. Go make disciples. Go do this. Then he says this in verse 20. Wonderful. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a happy discovery it must have been for those disciples to hear, okay, so Lord, all authority in the heaven and earth has been given to you. You're ultimately in control of it all, right? Yeah. And you're going, but you're going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to reside in our hearts. And through the Holy Spirit, you are going to reside in our hearts and you promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. You will always help us. The one who has all authority will be in me. Yeah. All right, boys. Let's get on it. What a happy discovery it must have been for them. You know, this word always, I was studying it this week, and there's certain words that jump out at you. And when he says, behold, I am with you always, the Greek word there that's translated always actually means something a bit longer. It actually means the whole of every day. I love that. Because what he's saying to them is, listen, I'm going to be with you the whole of every day, both now and forever for. I'm never going to leave you. Whatever's happening, for the whole of every day, I will be with you in my power and my might and authority. You have nothing to fear. What a happy discovery this must have been for them and my friends. What a happy discovery this must be for us, don't you think? We take the command with the truth. We're commanded to go, but the truth is all authority has been given to him and he is with you. In fact, he is in you. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Maybe a better question is, do you act that? Because for all of us, we're going to say, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Do you act it? Does your life say that Aslan in C.S. Lewis's novels Aslan had always pointed to the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the great I am, he's in me. Does your life say that? Does it act that? My friends, I want to encourage you. That is the truth. He is with you. He is in you. So act the miracle. Act it. This is a truth. The great King of kings and Lord of lords is with you and in you. He's called you to a great commission. But what makes it so great is not primarily what you're doing. What makes it so great, I believe, is that he's with you. It's him working in you and through you. He will give you the words to say. He will give you the courage to speak. He will give you the ability through your mere mumbling words to see lives changed. Why? Because he will be doing it. He will be the one bringing darkness to life. He'll be the one changing people's lives. He'll be the one that will help you disciple one another for the glory of the Lord, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded you. It's him. You're just not that good and neither am I. But he's amazing. He's amazing. And he will work in and through you for his glory. So act the miracle. 
you know, when you ask a kid what they want to do with their lives, most of the time they're going to say, I don't know. Sometimes they're going to say things like, you know, fire engine and unicorn catcher and singer on the stage. But most of the time they're going to say, I don't know. But for each and every Christian, when it comes to the question of, I wonder what God wants me to do with my life, there should never be the answer, I don't know. Because we can open our Bibles to Matthew 28 and we can say, this is what he wants me to do. He wants me to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He wants me to be somebody who is following Jesus and therefore helping others to follow Jesus as well. That's what he wants you to do with your life. And perfect though we may be, that's the great commission on our lives. So by God's grace, my friends, may we be those people. Amen? May we be a people that brandish the gospel and work it into our lives and then go act the miracle. And may all glory then go to him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for today, and I thank you for helping us to discern our mission. Lord, your word is so clear, and it's so clear because you are so clear. Lord, did you forgive us for times when we stand in confusion? Because, Lord, that confusion is not a mark of you, it is a mark of us. So, Lord, I thank you for the clarity that you bring to our lives. I thank you for the call. Lord, I thank you that as we go on this great commission, what makes it truly great is that you are with us. You are in us. You're helping us each and every step of the way. And so, Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters here. Would you help us to passionately go on this great mission? Would you you help us to be a people who are passionate about the lost and care for them? who are willing to communicate to them and get over the pain line about you and the glories of who you are. Lord, I thank you that the only reason why we're here is because somebody did that for us. And Lord, would you help us then not to switch off after people walk through the doors? Would you help us to continually be discipling others, intentionally teaching, counseling, ministering, assisting, praying? Lord, you are truly great. And through our mouths and our actions, would we make you greater? For you're worthy of all praise. Amen.